Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can find us on Twitter, we're at Newstalk Science. Coming up on this week's programme, our ability to talk, our language, is one of the most defining characteristics of what it is to be human. But where did it come from? And what did it do to us as a species? And are we its sole proponents in the universe? Or could we use it to contact other civilizations? We're doing a language special this week on Future Proof, starting off with Mark Pagel, who is a professor in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Reading, and he joins me now. Welcome to the program, Mark. Why is it that humans can speak and animals at least appear not to? I mean, they vocalize, but they don't have language in the same way as we do, for example. Yes, we've got, we've got, to, we've got to bear in mind that you know all animals communicate, and they do a pretty good job of it. But you're right in saying that... Uh, only, only humans have got what we would call language, this, this speaking in what we hope are complete sentences, things with subjects and objects and verbs. And we can rearrange the words in those sentences, the subject and object and verb words, over and over and over and produce an infinite variety of sentences. And, and only humans have that. And it's really difficult to know why we're the only species. I mean, we can give we can give sort of genetic answers and say that we have a particular set of genes that seems to predispose us to that. But particularly why it was our lineage. Acquired. So just before we go on, when you say we have a particular set of genes, how, how do we identify they have anything to do with uh, language? If, these, if people don't have these genes, do they, are they not able to, to make language? Yes, there was a gene discovered about 20 years ago called FOXP2. And uh, that gene, when it gets mutations in it, actually alters our ability to speak. It seems to be a gene that's involved in controlling the very fine facial muscles that control, you know, the way we pronounce words and the way we control our air flowing through our airways and so on. And mutations to that gene really affect uh, our ability with language. Wow. And what's what's interesting about humans is that we have a, a very particular form of that gene. It turns out that all mammals have it. But we have a very particular form, and the, the changes to our gene seem to be specific to language. And so, you know, one answer to that question of why we can speak and other animals can't is that we seem to have this very specific genetic adaptation. Do we know when language itself developed? Is there any way of, of reeling back the years in that way? Yeah, there is. I mean, you know, if we look across all of humanity... You know, we know that all human beings speak and they speak about equally well. All human groups have language and those languages are all equally good. And that tells us that language has been around since the origin of our species, at least since the origin of our species. So that tells us that language is at least somewhere around 200,000, maybe 300,000 years old. And, And if we're happy with the idea that no other species ever had language, then that, that gives us a relative age of language. And as I say, we, we all, all humans share this same genetic apparatus for language. And so it suggests to us that the ability to speak was probably present um, with, with the origin of our species. And, and you might even go further and say that's really the, the, the defining trait of our species. It's really what sets us apart. So if um, it began at that time, at the beginning of our species, and the beginning of our species came out of, uh, out of Africa, uh, does that mean that we all had a, 
there was a single universal language at one point? Well, it's probably the case that, that language arose, you know, w- with the origin of our species, and, and it, it probably arose just once. And so, in a sense, all of us, all of our languages descend from some common mother tongue that would have existed, you know, maybe 200 to 300,000 years ago. It, it does seem to be the case that when you study all of the languages that exist today, you know, around the world, and there are about 7,000 of them, that they all seem to share, you know, what we might call homology, that is traits that seem to spring from a common ancestor. So all languages rely on sentences, they all rely on syntax and grammar, and so on. And that gives us a sense that all of our languages today spring from a single event of the evolution of language. How many sounds do we typically use in, in, in English? And are there languages that use much more? Yes, I mean, so linguists refer to these as the phonemes, the yeah. sounds that we, we use. And English, you know, there's a, there's a lot of disagreement about exactly what the number is, but we can say somewhere around 75 different sounds are used in language. And, and you, can, you can sort of get a sense of that by just going through the alphabet and thinking of the different sounds you can make for each of the letters in the alphabet. And it's pretty easy to get up to around 75. Right. Other, other languages, famously the sort of click languages of the, of the, of the San people of South Africa, um, use many, many more than that, well over 100 different sounds. And then there's a, there's a, there's a language in, in, among the Polynesian people, some of the Hawaiian languages that seem to use very few sounds, you know, maybe somewhere around 10 to 20 different hmm. sounds. And an interesting thing arises with that variability. The languages that seem to have a small number of sounds tend to have very long words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and the languages with more sounds, their words tend to be shorter. Yeah, that sort of makes sense to me, I suppose. Yeah. Because uh, if, if you want to say the same amount of things and you have a fewer amount of sounds, you have to um, combine them in, uh, in more complex ways. That's um, right. So is it possible then with all of this variation, I mean, with all the globalization that's happening, because when we think about language, there's, what do you say, 7,000 languages, but there's, there's a large part of the world that speaks only a handful of languages, right? I mean, is it possible that, you know, when, when we become, you know, we kind of roll forward the, the clock, that those, you know, that 7,000 dwindles down and down and down and we end up speaking the same language? Yeah, I think that is possible and it, it, it might even be inevitable. So just to sort of, you know, set the context, indeed, there are 7,000 languages spoken around the world, but it should alarm you to realize that about 10 of those languages, just 10 of them, account for half, 50% of the world's speakers. And if you take those 10 languages and you ask how many, how many of the world's speakers can talk to each other using one of those languages, it goes up to over 90%. So they're called bridging languages. And these are languages like, of course, English, French, Japanese, Arabic, uh, Spanish, Russian, you know, the languages of the big countries of the world. And so the example I like to use is that if a French person meets a Japanese person on a train, they're each speaking one of those 10 major languages of the world, but they probably can't speak to each other unless they speak in English. English is the bridging language. Mm. And about 95% of the world can speak to each other using one of those bridging languages. Right. So that tells, that tells us that we're already down effectively to somewhere around 10 languages really dominating all the speech on earth. And with globalization, with all of us talking to each other and listening to each other 
all around the world in the in the world's media and sh and sharing things on social media and so on. That globalization is tending to homogenize languages and and for simply for historical reasons, you know, English sort of got there first as the world's language, and English will probably continue to rise and rise and rise. And one of the statistics I like to point out is that. You know, we think of the, of, the, of the Chinese, well over one billion Mandarin speakers, but somewhere around 400 million Chinese people at any given time are learning English. And not the, a, the, equi the equivalent of, of English people are not learning Mandarin, I can tell you that. Exactly, exactly. And so there, there seems to be this nearly one way flow towards English. So if we project that into the future, who knows how far? we may effectively have a single world language. But uh, but um, awkwardly for those um, Chinese students, languages changes all the time. And, and, and uh, you know, if you were to go to somewhere like um, Newcastle, you may, you may have learned English from a book in China, but you may have serious problems um, understanding what that person says. And, and that only increases with time um, uh, uh, for every language, right? I mean, there are 500 years ago or a thousand years ago, what we call English would be completely foreign. Yes, that's right. I mean, if we go back to Chaucer, if we just go back to the 14th century Chaucer, um, it's very, very hard for any of us to read Chaucer. It's a little bit easier to read Shakespeare and so on as we come up to the to the present. But all of the, the, the all of the forces that are leading to the homogenization of languages around the world are doing the same thing to the accents of those languages. And so if you look around the UK where I live, there's there's still very strong regional accents. But those regional accents, of course, are being broken down by the fact that we all watch the same television every night and we hear the same accent on the television. And so the same forces that are homogenizing languages are homogenizing accents. Mm. What is the evolutionary advantage of, of being able to speak? Because, I, I mean, when you think about it, it's, it's crazy that every animal doesn't have a, a more evolved system of language because of the huge benefits of being able to sort of share complex ideas. Um, what what are the evolutionary benefits? Yes, indeed, and that's and that's really the deeper answer to why it is that our species has language, and other species don't. And we can we can only give a sort of partial answer and a sort of speculative answer. But I think but I think it's an interesting one, which is to ask, and you already hinted at it. What do we use language for? Well, we use language to exchange ideas. We use language to negotiate, to bargain, to trade and exchange things. And those are things that that our species does, and and, and no other species does. Chimpanzees don't trade with each other. We do. I can make shoes and I can trade them to you for the trousers that you make if you're better at making trousers than me. But then what we have to do to, to complete that exchange is we have to negotiate, you know, how many of my shoes for one pair of trousers from you? And we have to argue about that. And you, so you can see that language becomes the conduit for a sort of economic species, a species that has really made its name based on trade and exchange and, and, and reciprocity. And again, you could just say, well, why don't the other language, why don't the other species have this capability? Well, the fact of the matter is that that those kinds of things, those kinds of psychological characteristics, are really, really very sophisticated. And it seems to be the case that that only one species, even moving up through the great apes and then moving up through the the other hominin species like ourselves, like the Neanderthals and so on, it seems that only one of them developed this this really sophisticated psychology that allowed us to understand what each other was thinking and doing, and then to enter into these kind of economic relationships. 
And as soon as that psychology evolved, I think language probably came almost instantly after as that conduit for carrying that important information that we use to cooperate. I, like, when, when we think about that, I'm thinking of a, an experiment I heard recently where I think it was monkeys were, you know, were given a certain amount of nuts and uh, then they were then they were given an opportunity to kind of gauge how many they should have gotten and they could do that. I mean, do we need language to, to negotiate, you know, surely a bearing of teeth if you don't give me what I think is the right amount is enough for, for you to know that um, you need to give me more? That's a really good point. And, and indeed, there are, there are some really striking experiments with, with monkeys that are relatively recent that are showing just that, that, that they have this sense of fairness, that, that somehow they know that if, that if someone else has been given more than them, you know, that they're, they're going to try to hold out and, and get their fair share. And that, that is part of the psychology that I think is, is that, we, that we recognize in us. And yet when we push really hard on those monkeys, when we look really closely at them, we, we see that, for example, they might um, shape a tool out of a stone and use that stone to crack nuts, for example. Chimpanzees are famous at this. But what they never seem to do is improve upon that stone. They never seem to, to shape it in a different way and make a slightly better stone, which then evolves into a hand axe, which then evolves into a hafted axe, you know, something you know, that we might call a hammer, or which evolves into a bow and an arrow. And so, in, in spite of the fact that we see... Thank God they haven't, by the way, because otherwise yeah. we would be screwed. Well, this is what the Planet of the Apes films yeah, are all yeah, about, yeah. and they're terribly alarming, yeah. So, in your book, you, you, you were talking about, you know, how, how much the language has changed uh, 500 years ago, and you have this great passage from Canterbury Tales, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Uh, I'll read it out for people, and people can see if they have any idea what Chaucer was talking about here. You might, you might be able to explain uh, if, you, if you can remember. A more way, one that day began to spring, up roos o'er hoost, and was o'er aller cock, and gadrida us in gitter alla in a flock, and forth we riden a little more than pass unto the watering of St. Thomas. I suppose some of it's, some of it's, when you look at it written down, it makes no sense, but when you read it out sort of phonetically, some of it sort of makes sense. Do you, do, what, do you know what that passage is about? Well, you're going to embarrass me here because, like you, I can I can remember writing it down, but I and but like you, uh, and I can remember I can I can recognize some of the words, but um, I can't translate the whole thing for you. Yeah, that so, makes a really nice point that you know some parts of our language change at different rates than others. Some yeah. of our words change more rapidly than others. Yeah, gathered uh, I presume gathered us in it to gitter alla in a flock. So gathered us all in a flock. Um, and forth we ridden, forth we, we ride. So, so some of that makes sense. In 500 years, will people listen back to Future Proof and have no idea what I'm saying? That's a really good question. I have a feeling that um, the, the homogenization of language and globalization is, is, is going greatly to slow the rate at which languages evolve because we're going to be speaking in a larger and larger and larger population. And so any changes to language are going to take a long time to kind of sweep through all those speakers. So if we use what's happened in the past, yes, 500 years from now, we're, we're going to find it hard to understand each other. But I think the rate of language evolution is going to slow a bit. Well, it's been brilliant speaking with you. Uh, and uh, if you want to check out the book, it's called Wired for Culture. Uh, Mark Pagel, professor in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Reading. Thanks very much. That was fascinating. Thank you. Now, Charlemagne said that to have a second language is to have a second soul. 
My producer wrote that. It's a nice turn of phrase, but it also appears to have been maybe more prescient than the father of Europe intended. So just what effect does how we talk have on how we think? Well, Lyra Boroditsky is an associate professor of cognitive science at UCSD and the author of 7,000 Universes, How the Language We Speak Shapes the Way We Think. She joins me now. Lyra, could you start by telling us a little bit about how our use of language and how we make it changes from one place to another? Yeah, let me start with uh, one of my favorite examples, and that's how people organize space. Now, this is a very fundamental thing in every language. Um, how do you decide what's where. In English, we use words like left and right uh, very frequently, but a lot of languages don't use words like left and right frequently, or some languages don't have them at all. And instead, they put everything in some kind of cardinal space. So for example, north, south, east, and west. There is one language I worked on uh, in Australia called Kuktaur, and in Kuktaur, you use north, south, east, and west for everything. So you would even say something like, there's an ant on your southwest leg. Or, There's an you know, ant on your southwest leg. Yeah, imagine playing the hokey pokey in a language like that, where every time you move a leg, it's no longer your southwest leg, now it's going to be your northeast leg, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> a much more challenging mental exercise. It sounds like nerd twister. <laughs> exactly. But so people who speak languages like this, um, turns out, are incredibly good at staying oriented, because... Uh, just in order to speak a language properly, you have to know which way is which. And they stay oriented better than we used to think humans could. We used to think other animals had better navigating abilities because they had you know, magnets in their beaks or in their scales. And we always had some kind of biological excuse why we couldn't do it. But then there are all these cultures around the world where even little kids can point their cardinal directions and uh, stay oriented and they do it because they have to. Their stop, 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 stop. You're telling me that th- these people know, when they say north, south, east, west, they don't mean north to them as in in front of them. They mean north as in pointing north on, on, yes. a, on a map. So if I'm facing you, my, my left is different if I'm facing the other way. Left and right are with respect to the body, or they can sometimes be with respect to other objects. So you you might say something is to the left of the horse when you're thinking about what is the horse's left side, right? But (laughs) north, south, east, and west are always north, south, east, and west. They're laid out on the surface of the earth. And so for these folks, not only are those directions, of course, always said north, south, east, west, they don't, they're not used with respect to the body. But even the way you say hello in Kuktaur, so um, imagine yourself walking around uh, your normal work day. Everyone says, who says hi to you, uh, they say, hey, which way are you heading? And the right answer should be something like, oh, north, northwest in the far distance. How about you? So literally, you wouldn't be able to get past hello in this language if you didn't know your heading direction. And you even see this in the way that people gesture. So if someone is telling a story about something that happened a few years ago, they might say, the boat turned over, and as they're gesturing it, they might make a gesture uh, perpendicular to their body, turning away. And if another time they're telling the story, but they're sitting facing uh, in a different cardinal direction, when they go to gesture that the boat turned over, their gesture will turn too. So now the gesture will be parallel to the body and uh, going uh, to the right, for example. And what they're really gesturing is the absolute 
axis and direction of rotation of the boat when it happened. And that's something they just naturally remember because that's the way they're, uh, they've trained their mind to encode spatial information. The, the way we experience time, of course, something that is uh, so difficult to get uh, a grasp on um, in any language, uh, differentiates quite a bit to spend, depending on what language you're speaking. Uh, and this is true of uh, the Cook Tayor, as it is mm-hmm. of uh, Greek people, as it is of, of, of English people. Yeah, so um, there are a couple ways that English speakers organize time. One is according to writing direction. So from left to right, uh, we read and write from left to right. And if you ask people to lay out um, uh, a series of pictures, for example, I like to use pictures of my grandfather at different ages and uh, take those pictures, scramble them up, give them to you in a stack and say, lay these out in the correct order. What an English speaker is very likely to do is lay them out from left to right. Right, so the baby's on the left, the teenager's uh, in the middle, and the old man is on the right. Exactly. Uh, Now, if you read and write from right to left, like if you read Arabic or Hebrew, then you're much more likely to lay those cards out from right to left. So organize them uh, according to writing direction in the other other direction. Really? Yep. (laughs) And uh, uh, actually, if you read and write from left to right, you think that... Uh, soccer goals that are scored from left to right are more beautiful, stronger, and more forceful than ones that are scored from right to left. Uh, and the reverse is true if you are an Arabic uh, speaker, for example, and you read from right to left. So this writing direction, the way that your language is written, orients a whole lot of your visual experience and attention. Well, what about um, the, the cook they are then? Because if they are constantly thinking about where north is and using that in their language, how would they order the, the, the baby, the teenager, and the old man if they were sourcing the pictures? Wonderful question. So uh, that's what I went there to find out. Um, when I gave them the cards, I would sit people facing in different directions, and here's what we saw. If people were sitting facing south, they would organize the cards from left to right. But if they're sitting facing north, they would organize the cards from right to left. Shut up. You're if they're kidding. sitting facing east, they would make the cards come towards their body. So they were organizing the cards from east to west. To them, their body wasn't the thing that time was anchored on. It wasn't going left or right or right to left or anything with respect to their body. It was really just anchored on the landscape. Uh, they, for them, it's the direction of the sun, of course, the direction of motion of the sun across the sky. What about how um, people describe duration? Yeah, so there are differences also in uh, duration. In English, we use words like long and short to talk uh, about uh, time. So we might say it was a long concert, that was a short meeting. Yeah. Um, other languages use words that are more amounty, uh, so um, or size uh, words. Like in Greek, you might say that was uh, a big concert, meaning it was a long concert. So words like big and small are used to talk about duration. And uh, what studies have found is um, if you're an English speaker and you use these distance terms, when you have to estimate how long something took, you can be confused by conflicting information that has distance. So if I um, am showing you a line that's growing across a screen and at the same time, I'm having to having you make a judgment about duration. You're going to be confused by the length of the line. You're going to be distracted. 
but you're not going to be distracted by some amount of information that's likewise irrelevant. Um, a Greek speaker is more likely to be distracted by the amount of information and less likely to be distracted by distance. And that is, I mean, you're talking about a fundamental change in how we experience the world around us, which means that, um, you know, when we speak to someone from a different language, even though we're trying to find similar words, the way that even even the, the words we use may be one thing, but actually how we think about these concepts of abstractness, you know, size, duration, uh, direction, they're really important things differ hugely. Um unpacking all of this you know how can how can we use this knowledge of of how we differ in languages and presumably for diplomats it's really important uh, in understanding local differences so so not to offend or to to, to get the best outcome but uh, it can affect our our understanding of intent for example in in law or in in in, in crime right and and or and, and witness statements in different languages must mean very different things Sure, that's true. But, you know, uh, I think the most the, the most useful thing is to think about the language that we use ourselves and the way we choose to frame things. Um, let me give you an example that's just in English. So if I break a vase, whether it's an accident or it's intentional, um, it's normal and expected for me to say I broke the vase, like a, that, that simple expression. Yeah. In, that, in other languages, if it was an accident, you might say something like the vase broke or the vase broke itself. Um, <laughs> That's what my because, kids say all the time. Well, exactly. So in English, it's considered the, the province of guilt-tricking children and politicians, right? This is, this is how people talk when they want to evade responsibility. But actually, it's natural to, to want to distinguish between things that are intentional and accidental. And lots and lots of languages make that distinction stronger. In fact, it's kind of funny that in English, we say things like, I broke my arm. Where, you know, of course, unless you're a lunatic, you didn't go out looking to break your arm <laughs> intentionally and you succeeded, right? Almost all of the time, it's going to be an accident. And yet we still use this form, this grammatical form that suggests that I did it as if it was an intentional thing. The way we talk about these events matters a lot for how we perceive who's to blame. So if you describe an event as he broke the vase or he ripped the costume, people are much more likely to blame the person. Mm. Uh, and they're also more likely to ask for more money and damages. So the financial liability goes up. And we have this idea in our culture that we can just go to the tape, that we can just see things with our eyes. And if we go to the tape, we'll see what happened. And that's, that's the ultimate arbiter yeah. uh, that we need. But actually what we find is uh, the way you describe something matters a whole lot. The things that we believe about our own minds, we believe we just see things, we experience reality, and that's how we make our judgments, those beliefs are incorrect. We're being influenced by lots and lots of different kinds of information, and very importantly, by the kinds of things that people say around us and the kinds of things we say ourselves. One of my favorite um, subjects is, is how we completely and utterly misperceive the world. Um, and finally, is it possible that if your language doesn't, it doesn't have a concept for it, that you you can't experience something in the same way because you know there are some words that exist only in some languages they describe a certain feeling is it possible that that um by not having those words by not having that language we experience something less or not at all um there are some really striking examples like that um 
uh, let me give you the example of number. So, uh, of course, English has uh, a, a nice, rich number system based around uh, the units of 10. Um, lots of languages have that. that. That idea has spread around the world. Some languages have different number systems, so some number systems are based around 8 or 12 or 6 or 27, but then some languages don't have number systems, don't have um, exact number words, so there are languages that don't have a word for 7, for example, and so there's no way to specify exactly 7 in those languages, or 15 or 11. I know it sounds crazy, but n- numbers are actually a very recent human invention. Uh, this specific <laughs> number system that we uh, that we use, that's a positional decimal system that we have with a zero, that only got invented once uh, with a true zero in India around 11th century and eventually came to Europe in the 1700s. So before that, we had Roman numerals, which were much worse for making mental calculations. This is a this is a very uh, difficult human invention. It took humans many, many thousands of years to come up with the number system that we have now. I know it seems so basic, and we're you know as adults you can't remember learning these things. They just seem like they come with the universe. Yeah. Um, but it is a it is a relatively recent human invention, and it's a hard invention. So the idea of having positional numbers only happened four times in the world, as far as we know. So some languages will have uh, words, for example, for one, two, and three, and after that they have uh, just few and many. And some languages <laughs> don't have exact number words at all. So there's not even a word for one or two. There's no, uh, there are no exact number words. So they're just words that mean relatively more and relatively fewer. They must be very egalitarian sort of Marxist <laughs> societies, I would imagine, because otherwise how on earth would you trade? Well, if you live in the natural world, exact numbers don't have the same value as they do in our commercial societies, mm. right? So like seven fish and seven tomatoes don't actually have anything in common. Uh, the sevenness isn't important. Uh, yeah. <laughs> even seven fish doesn't equal seven fish because fish vary in their size and quality and freshness and variety and all kinds of things, right? So what's important to you is not the sevenness of the fish, but you know, whether or not you're going to have enough for dinner. Hmm. Um, and so a lot of folks who live in these more natural uh, societies uh, don't feel a need for exact number. And if you don't have exact number words in your language, it makes it very hard to keep track of exact quantities. So if I, for example, place uh, five nuts in a can, uh, one after another, and then ask you to uh, knock on the table the same number as I put the nuts in, um, that's a task that you could do very easily by counting. But if you don't have number words, it becomes very, very hard to do that task. Uh, You just can't keep track of those exact numbers. So that to me is an example where uh, if your language doesn't supply a set of pre-made ideas that other humans have worked out for you in your culture in the past, it's going to be really, really hard to get entrance into the world of mathematics because, you know, counting is just the first step, of course. It's the simplest part, uh, but it opens up the door to doing algebra and doing trigonometry and Mm. calculus and then doing all of the things that then lead to the incredible technological world that we live in. Lyra, I, I wish we had big time, but unfortunately we only have tiny time um, uh, and, and that time is gone. It's been fascinating speaking with you. Lyra Baroditsky is Associate Professor of Cognitive Science at UCSD and author of 7,000 Universes, How the Languages We Speak Shape the Way We Think. It will blow your mind. Lyra, thanks so much. 
Thanks so much for having me. Now, is there anybody out there? It's a question that humans have been asking since humans have been around, but we've only really started looking in the last 100 years or so. Most of us are vaguely familiar with SETI and what it does, but what sort of signals are we actually looking for from space? And what messages are we sending to extraterrestrial worlds? What are the chances of us understanding each other? Well, Daniel Oberhaus is a writer with Wired and author of Extraterrestrial Languages. He joins me now. Welcome to the show, Daniel. So this search for extraterrestrials or aliens started with um, Frank Drake in a scientific way, I suppose. That's right. Um, you know, people have been interested in the idea of extraterrestrial intelligence, as you had mentioned, pretty much since forever. But the modern search for extraterrestrial intelligence started in the mid 20th century with uh, Frank Drake and Carl Sagan, who collaborated on a number of projects. Perhaps the most well-known is Project Ozma, which was run out of the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia in the United States. And they observed two stars for several months, several hours a day. Uh, they didn't hear anything, but, you know, it kind of got the ball rolling and, you know, people have been observing ever since. Sorry, they did what? They, they tuned a giant radio telescope to two stars about a dozen light years away from Earth, and they listened for several hours a day. They just had a long sheet of paper scrolling and there's a needle just moving back looking for a spike in radio energy yeah and so they found nothing over how long uh it, it was about four months and they were sitting there several hours a day and uh you know drake when he was reflecting on it a few years later just described it as one of the most excruciatingly boring pastimes ever which you know when you're hunting for aliens isn't exactly what you would what you would expect no yeah alien hunters as a as a movie you don't imagine just a man <laughs> in a room looking at a piece of paper and a needle not moving. So before radio um, became a big thing, there were a number of scientists in Europe who were trying to contact Martians. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, of course. So one of, one of the more interesting ideas, I think, was a there was an Austrian uh, astronomer named Joseph von Littrow who had the idea that it would be great to dig massive trenches in the Saharan desert, fill them with water, coat them with kerosene, and light them on fire so we could send giant flaming messages to people that they thought might live on the moon or you know perhaps more likely mars what so, is what was the message uh, our planet is on fire <laughs> yeah i mean that 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 would definitely uh, send a pretty uh, strong signal i mean he was looking more at mathematical signals so for instance something you could create a visual proof of the pythagorean theorem or something of that nature so relatively simple messages but in paris around you know the mid 19th century they started thinking about how to send more complex messages. So, uh, for instance, one mathematician came up with an idea to coat the Eiffel Towers in giant mirrors and use them to flash Morse code signals towards Mars. You know, I'm not sure how he expected the Martians to know Morse code because it's entirely conventional, but <laughs> it, it, it was a slight improvement over lighting the desert on fire. And I, I, and I love the fact that, like, the Eiffel Tower was the the, the tallest thing a Parisian could come could, could come up with. <laughs> uh, so those sort of early efforts were probably inspired by the desire to to understand where, where we stood in the universe. But at that time, were people thinking it, whether or not it was a good idea? Had the had the 1950s idea of if aliens come, they're going to kill us? been publicly talked about you know that, that that's interesting the the idea of these malevolent aliens existing out there it you know maybe in some obscure science fiction but it wasn't really until uh 
Marconi and Tesla started experimenting with radio uh, around the turn of the century that people really kind of started to take those ideas seriously because radio could communicate across much greater distances than light. And there's actually, there's a great uh, editor, anonymous editorial from the New York Times from like 1903, where this person is making the argument that, you know, we shouldn't use radio to contact aliens. Marconi is nuts because if they have more advanced math than us, they're just going to ruin everything for us on earth. We need to figure this out on our own. Hmm. You know, let's, let's not talk to them. Um, so, you know, I, I think that was really the first part in my research that I found that, uh, where people really started taking the idea of contact seriously and, you know, considering the downsides. So we, we are nowadays trying to look for signals and we'll talk about, uh, you know, sending signals out in, in a while, but, um, we are looking for signals coming in. What, what, looks like an alien signal to us, do you think? I mean, that is the big question for astronomers who are involved in SETI. Depending on who you ask, you'll get a different answer. So, for instance, out at the SETI Institute in uh, Northern California, they look for a handful of parameters um, when they're searching for signals. One of them is that the signal only occupies a narrow bandwidth. So, if you're looking at a pulsar or something out in the universe, the radio waves it emits will kind of be just smeared across the radio spectrum. Right. Whereas for uh, an intelligent signal, you'd expect that they would concentrate the energy in a very narrow bandwidth. And so that would be a great sign of a signal, as would be a repeating pattern, you know, maybe something simple like an on-off, on-off pattern. Mm. So pretty rudimentary stuff, but since we haven't discovered anything, you kind of have to take your best guess. Like, how would we send a message out into the universe? And so that's kind of the same, the tack we've taken when we've broadcast. So um, have we seen signals out there in space that are as yet unclassified? We definitely see a lot of unclassified signals in space. Uh, lately, the astronomy, the radio astronomy community, rather, has been uh, very interested in these events called fast radio bursts, which are this, these huge peaks in uh, radio intensity uh, that last for just a few microseconds. Mm. And no one can really explain them yet. The current thinking is that they're natural phenomena, not aliens. But, you know, if you're interested in extraterrestrial life, uh, a few decades ago, um, astronomers out at Ohio State University discovered a signal that to this day remains our best candidate for an extraterrestrial signal. Uh, it's generally known as the wow signal. And they saw this kind of ramp up in energy on, on this uh, radio band that they were monitoring and still can't explain this kind of slow increase and then decrease in energy. It, it, there wasn't any information encoded in the signal, which I think makes it a little bit suspect as a uh, candidate signal, but we've never seen anything else like it before or since. So, What do you mean information encoded in the signal? So in, in, in this particular case, the signal was unmodulated radio wave. So if I were to send say, a Morse code message to you, I, I would uh, modulate the signal, which just basically means changing its parameters. So either I could I could switch between two frequencies or I could uh, change the, the intensity of the single frequency itself. Mm. And by, by changing those in uh, predetermined patterns, such as Morse code, you would be able to encode radio, or sorry, encode information into the signal. And so in this case, it was just a, you know, there, there, there was no modulation. It was just the same radio frequency just getting more powerful and then less powerful over the course of about a minute and a half. Um, well, maybe, that's, so no, that, maybe that was a modulation that was, became more powerful and less powerful. That yeah, maybe the modulation perhaps. that they're doing isn't as concrete? 
Well, and you know, to that to that point, uh, you know, a lot of people in SETI, especially people who are thinking about uh, broadcasting messages out into the universe rather than just searching for them, think that the most energy efficient way to do that would be just to create a beacon. So you just, you know, don't put any information in there. Just send out a signal, mm. and that could alert an ETI to our presence, and then maybe we can begin a conversation. So there are a few sort of candidates, but nothing very convincing at the moment and nothing certainly we haven't seen any little green men or at least not that the CIA has let us hear about but are we sending any signals out I mean I know Voyager uh, the spacecraft was sent 40 odd years ago that's still traveling but as far as I'm concerned it's still either in our solar system or just a little bit beyond but it's certainly not going any distance to somewhere where we think there might be extraterrestrial life do we send out signals that that go to another solar system, and who's doing that and why? So, uh, as you had mentioned, the odds of anyone picking up Voyager are next to zero. Um, as, actually, there was a message that predated Voyager that was created by Carl Sagan and Frank Drake uh, that they sent in the Arecibo message. But that also, even though it is the most powerful message we've ever sent in space, ever. Um, that also isn't likely to be received, much less understood by an extraterrestrial intelligence just due to the distances in, involved as well as the coding scheme. But we've gotten a little bit more sophisticated in terms of how we think about messaging today. It's still a really controversial area of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. There's a very strong contingent of astronomers who think it's a waste of time, money, and perhaps you know could be a dangerous activity to pursue. But there are some people that are you know, actively pursuing this. Uh, one that immediately comes to mind is a uh, quite well-known astronomer named Douglas Vakuk, who runs the uh, METI Institute. And he, for the last two years, has actually broadcast uh, a message each year from a radio telescope up in Norway. Um, and th- this message uh, was actually pretty unique. It, it was based on a m- the most recent scientific message that had been sent before, which was in 2003. And so they kind of pulled some of the design elements from that message, and then they worked with a bunch of musicians from uh, the Sonar Music Festival, which is an annual festival in uh, Spain. And they had a bunch of musicians design short little musical messages. Um, And they're all very, uh, very creative and very unique in their approach to this. You know, will anyone hear this? The answer, you know, we won't know for a few years, but... How how far can this message travel? Uh, that that's actually a, a big point of contention with these messages. There's a a lot of people who think that they weren't actually strong enough to be received by their target, but their target does. We know for a fact that the target hosts an exoplanet that is in the habitable zone. So there is the possibility that there could be life, whether or not it's intelligent. You know, yeah, it's kind of a long shot, but there is a planet at their target. It's just a question of is there anyone listening there. So these these messages, are they so precise as to be able to target a single planet or a solar system or a galaxy or what? So in this case, it would be uh, a solar system. Um, so, you know, if someone were to send a message towards our sun uh, with our the ability of our radio receivers on Earth, we would most likely be able to detect it unless there were some um, unusual circumstance given the position of the planet relative to the sender or something like that. And, you know, the sun, our own sun. But yeah, by targeting solar systems, there's a pretty good chance that if there was someone on a planet there, they would be able to to pick it up. Um, 
What about AI? Um, how much of the sky are we scanning? And, and can AI not surely answer this question for us very quickly? Or is that still a staggering amount of data to have to compile and analyze? So one of the holy grails for SETI is to basically put enough receivers over the surface of the Earth so that we can be scanning all this sky all the time. We're not quite there yet. Uh, that takes a lot of money and a lot of you know smart people working on the problem, and SETI is always strapped for cash. But you know at this point, we have run about 50 SETI surveys covering thousands and thousands of stars, but one of the senior astronomers working with the SETI Institute likes to kind of make the comparison that if the universe was all of the oceans on Earth, we've only searched for about a hot tub or a jacuzzi's worth of that ocean for life. So barely scratching the surface here. Mm. But as you had mentioned, artificial intelligence, I think, is a very promising research direction for this because it can look, it can basically average over all of the readings from uh, these telescopes looking for intelligent life and say, you know, what is the norm and what looks unnormal? And this might be very small deviations from the norm that might escape human notice, but it can pick out these little small little blips on the radar essentially and say, hey, maybe we should look closer at this signal and we might have missed that otherwise. And so SETI is really just kind of getting started with AI, but I think over the next 10 years, you know, advances in computing plus advances in radio telescopes, I, you know, I, I don't think it's too far-fetched to think that within our lifetime, if, the, if there are extraterrestrials broadcasting, we might be able to hear them. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea, but the numbers to me sound very much stacked against us. But I love, I mean, it would be spectacular to find alien life on Mars, which I know is one of the the next missions um, that NASA has. It would be amazing to look at an exoplanet and see some sort of a signal that uh, let us know that actually Earth is all across our universe. But I think the likelihood of that is, as you say, um, a, a hot tub in all the oceans in the world or a a needle in a haystack, uh, but it doesn't mean we should stop looking. Uh, Daniel Oberhouse, writer with Wired and author of Extraterrestrial Languages. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.